This is Hard Reset from BigIfTrue.org. I'm JC Cortez in Vancouver, Washington. I'm Justin Sanders in Houston, Texas. And I'm Molly Bryant. I'm here in Oklahoma City. We're recording this on Sunday, March 7th. Today on the show, millions of families are behind on their rent, placing a high demand on legal aid programs that provide free legal services to low-income Americans. But first, during the COVID vaccine rollout, state and federal websites have been crucial avenues for people to sign up and get a vaccine appointment. But how accessible are these sites to people with disabilities? Kaiser Health News reported recently that almost every state vaccine website has accessibility issues. Those issues made it difficult for blind Americans to sign up for the vaccine. We spoke this week with Lauren Weber, one of the reporters behind this story. I wanted to start with the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed in 1990. So what rights are connected to that law and how does that apply to websites, like government websites? So it's interesting, there was also a law in 1973, the Rehabilitation Act that came before the ADA that actually has even more of the website piece to it. Uh, but essentially what both of those laws combined do is they enshrine the right to an accessible website. And so if you are blind or visually disabled, you obviously interact with the internet in a different way than a sighted person. You know, the internet, when you want to read something on the internet, you usually use something called the screen reading technology, which uh, is programmed on the back end to read aloud the website that you're seeing to you. And what the ADA and sections 504 and 508 of the Rehabilitation Act um, enshrined was that, you know, things on the web should be accessible to you. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, screen reading technology, and that's what, you know, folks who are blind use that to access the internet. Um, can you talk a little bit about how those things work and, like, what are some of the issues that might come up if uh, if a site isn't compatible with that technology? Yeah, so screen reading technology essentially is programmed on the back end of websites. So Essentially what it does is it, it reads the coding of the website aloud, but if you, for instance, you know, photos on a website will usually have something called alt text, which essentially is a descriptor of what the photo says. But if you are a web programmer and you don't fill that out, then the blind person doesn't know what that object on the website is. Um, also some other common catch-ups, especially in the search for the coronavirus vaccine have been CAPTCHA issues, um, have not been programmed properly for screen readers. You also have drop-down forms that have not been programmed properly for screen readers for users to be able to use their keyboard to click around. Uh, there's been a lot of missing text attributes and buttons that have been misprogrammed. And essentially, the bottom line is a lot of these sites do not seem to have been programmed with accessibility in mind, and that that does violate uh, disability laws. Yeah, Lauren, hey, I'm wondering, um, do you kind of have any leads or ideas on what can that can kind of be attributed to? Is it just, you know, trying to get these websites out quickly? Have you talked to anybody that's kind of given you insight into why some of these things were, were missed in the development? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first, uh, the first thing everyone says is, look, these things are put up quickly, like, that's, you know, the first thing that people lose when they put things up quickly is accessibility. But to be honest, the web is a nightmare for anyone that is blind or visually impaired. Uh, 
in general, websites are not, especially as the web has grown. Essentially, a lot of websites around the country are not are not programmed properly for people. And so it's not a surprise that these would not be programmed properly. What is surprising is that they're run by the state. And so also, frankly, uh, the states and local governments were warned ahead of time not, uh, you know, about this issue. There were letters sent by the National Federation of the Blind to the CDC, who in turn warned state and local governments, or so they said, and still we've had this problem. I'm, I'm reading a quote from the piece that the president of the National Federation of the Blind wrote in early December to the CDC about this issue. So, I mean, we're like three months out from that now. And so I'm, I'm curious about how difficult these the changes are to implement this kind of thing. Is, is three months a, a, a reasonable timetable? No, no. I mean, these, these changes are somewhat, as I understand it, and now I'm not a programming expert, these changes are easily done. Uh, it's, it, this, is, this is a problem where, in general, the web is not designed with accessibility in mind. And that, on top of violating the law, it is unacceptable. I mean, the, this is not, as we say in the piece, this is not ordering a pizza, which there's been plenty of lawsuits over accessibility of Domino's website. This is potentially access, the piece discusses, the blind community, you know, social distancing is much harder for them. You know, in general, they can't see those around them. And they also need help at the grocery store to find different things. And that all becomes so much more difficult in the time of COVID. And it's just incredibly alarming that these websites are inaccessible to these folks. And, and if that's hampering their ability then. Yeah, Lauren, and something else that, that jumps out to me, you know, you mentioned um, the web is, is a nightmare for, for people that have trouble visually reading websites. And something that I think about when I read your piece is, you know, are there even other options right now in, in this situation for people if they can't sign up via a website? Like in your experience, in a lot of these cases, it almost seems like for these counties and these uh, health departments with limited supply, the web portal might be the only way people are even able to sign up for a vaccine. So if it doesn't work with your technology that you need to use the web, what other options do you even have? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, we've all seen that this has been a bit of a rat race for who's the most technologically savvy to get these appointments that slip away in seconds. And what some health departments have started to offer are phone lines, but as we discuss phone lines, unless they're operated 24 seven and have the same accessibility, that doesn't fix the problem of having an inaccessible website. Uh, it still violates the law. And as I'm sure you all have heard, these phone lines have also been a nightmare. People are on hold for forever. They're not around the clock. Uh, and, and sometimes you lose out on the slots before you could even talk to somebody. Well, maybe I'm just being cynical, but I would also guess that if they did set up a phone line, they would probably post about it on their website. So that might be kind of a, you know, a catch 22 as well. Exactly. And I mean, one thing too, on top of the vaccine registration websites being horrible to access, you know, the information websites are incredibly difficult to navigate for some of these folks. And, you know, I talked to many blind people who discussed how in the early days of COVID, it was very hard to a lot of these charts and images and data was presented in a way that was inaccessible to them. And so, you know, for them to educate themselves about what was going on, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, was also incredibly difficult. I'm kind of curious. So how have, um, you know, since your report on this, how have the states responded to your reporting? Have they made any changes yet? 
So we haven't seen changes quite yet, but uh, Senator Hassan actually sent in a letter uh, to the HHS Civil Rights Division and also I believe DOJ's Civil Rights Division signed on by 12 senators, including Senator Warren, um, and I believe Senator Booker uh, and, and a few more folks uh, calling for change on the article uh, and, and to make sure that this accessibility does get fixed. So we'll see what happens on that. We haven't, we, that hasn't played out quite yet. Uh, I know too, I've had a lot of different disability groups reach out to say that they also are looking into this in their area. We are tracking it closely to see, you know, even the folks that we reached out to for comment, you know, some of them mentioned Alameda County and California. They had actually even already begun to fix it before we even talked to them because they had already gotten so many complaints. Um, so these things are fixable. And that's, I, I mean, I think that's what the name of the game should be. And I think what's sad is, you know, the, the president of the National Federation of the Blind said, like, look, we don't have time for a lawsuit. Like, we need these people to fix these websites today because these appointments are slipping away for people that need them. You mentioned, you know, it's kind of a, a rat race to get these vaccine appointments. Could you talk a little bit about just issues that have come up with people in general uh, trying to get their their vaccine appointment? Yeah, no, in general, uh, the vaccine appointment, a lot of people equate to the Hunger Games these days um, until there is a lot more supply, which it does seem like is coming soon. Uh, it's been very difficult. People have had to sign up online with very limited time for, you know, slots that disappear in seconds. Uh, I mean, you know, people that are sighted and can use the internet are having a very difficult time getting it. And then imagine if you're 85 or 90 and the internet is not something that you are quite as comfortable with and you have to navigate through some sort of tricky health department website and, and try and snag a slot. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost incomprehensible for you know, some elderly people to think of their ability to do that in, in the time demanded of them. Yeah, Lauren, on that note, something else I'm really curious about, um, you know, we talked about screen readers, uh, and I think that concept is fairly intuitive you know, of a website being turned into something you can listen to. How do things work the other direction? If you have to fill out a form or pick an appointment slot you know, in a website that's, that's been quickly put together, what does that technology look like for someone that, that can't you know, visually see the screen? Essentially, what if you are someone that's using a screen reader, you end up relying on your keyboard. So you'll like tab through as you're listening to the options available. But like I said, a lot of times the folks at least that I talked to, when they were tabbing through or using their control keys to get around while listening to the website, they would run into roadblocks or the programming would have not been so fully formed so that it was understandable where they were kind of clicking around or moving around with their keyboard. And so it is a fascinating way. I know that before this story, I had never really thought about programming accessibility. You know, shout out to the co-writer of this, Hannah Recht, my colleague, who, you know, when she started seeing these websites pop up at the end of December, she had done, she's done some programming herself. She realized the accessibility issues just straight away because it was very clear to her from the outside. But for the average person like myself who uses the web and, and doesn't think twice about it, I would have had no idea that, you know, accessibility like this is so pivotal and so important when it comes to designing websites. When you talk to people, for anybody who might be hearing this, anybody who might be listening, were there any, is there any like, is there any advice or anything, any uh, resource that people were able to use that seemed to help them get through this? Yeah, I mean, I, and this is also, I mean, what a sign of <laughs> a 
America in 2021, the app that a couple of people we talked to use is Aria, which is uh, an app that allows a sighted person to operate your computer and sign you up, um, sign up for you. Now, but as someone said in, in our story, and I think it's so important, you know, this woman was telling me all about, uh, Sheila was telling me all about her life in California. And she's like, look, I really resent the implication that I need a fairy godmother to hold my hand and help me through the day. And as she pointed out to me, look, like someone's signing you up for a vaccine appointment. I mean, that's fantastic that they help you get it. But that's also a lot of personal information that you're handing out. It's your social, it's your birth date, all of that. So people are understandably nervous about it. And they should be able to do it on their own. But I was I it was fascinating to see Aria honestly was was tweeting about our story and saying, if you need help signing up for a vaccine, please use us uh, because we are a sighted site. The other advice I would say is to definitely get into contact with your National Federation of the Blind Society. Uh, it seems like they certainly have been working with folks on this as well, and they have chapters in each state. Um, sounds like a, a really interesting organization. I'm just curious, anybody you talk to, um, whether it's on the technical side or on the advocacy side, do we do we have an idea of how we can move forward with this? Is there a way or an organization that's talking about some sort of, um, whether it's coding standards or a piece of technology somehow that we can make it more easy up front or, or just uh, have a better way to make sure that these things are being taken into account during development of new technology or new websites for a situation like this? Yeah, I, I mean, shout out to WebAIM because they, like I said, Ahana collected all of those websites for them to run. And, and as we said, we found over 90 with problems uh, at the state uh, level. And what they do and what many of the groups we talk to do is, is advocate quite broadly for better web accessibility. Um, there certainly are website standards and programming standards. After the piece, I saw quite a lot of Twitter chatter from folks who we're frustrated. I think there are some people that take accessibility seriously. I know there's a hashtag, um, Alley with a one one Y. But in in an era with an, you know an exploding internet, there are some folks that don't. And I think there is more of a movement to make sure this is taught in school. But there also probably should be more of a movement from some of the advocates have said that I've talked to for websites to be held to the standard more frequently, and they're they're just not. And in general, I think too, on the programming side, there's a lot of web builders and such that, that are not inherently accessible. And I think that also can lead to some of these issues. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and then that kind of leads me to my next question is just, is the only kind of course of action here, like after the fact, or is that really like a lawsuit, you know, to follow up on the issue? Is there any type of enforcement for policies like this? Or is that something still that maybe we need to talk about? In recent years, have actually been somewhat of a wave of lawsuits uh, for blind residents in the U.S. suing uh, one sued Domino's over being unable to order their pizza online. Uh, one sued the Win Dixie grocery store chain in the South because they could not order groceries online, um, saying that that was an unfair inaccessibility. And they both won. And and there's a couple other suits on this front. So I I think too, you know, something in talking to the legal experts that I talked to for the piece. We'll see what happens in the Biden administration if this is something that gets reevaluated by them in, in making more stringent website accessibility uh, laws enshrined. I think that was something from my reporting that was under conversation in the Obama era. Sounds like it stalled out a bit in the Trump era, and potentially we'll see if it's back on the table now. Uh, but in general, the fastest way to change 
that a lot of the legal experts I said spoke to is, is first sending a letter and alerting people to the problem. And then if it doesn't change, then a lawsuit often is what uh, they, they have followed suit with. You just heard Lauren Weber, Midwest correspondent for Kaiser Health News. You can read her story, which she co-reported with Hannah Recht on khn.org. Molly, next up on the show, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about a story that you had up on bigoftrue.org last week. Uh, Kind of another update and something that we followed a lot during the COVID-19 pandemic. uh, And that is the different policies kind of trying to protect vulnerable people from being evicted during this, you know, global crisis. Um, what, what did you kind of look into on this, on this latest story and what are some of the newest developments and what's going on with eviction bans? Well, I guess kind of as a starting point, um, there, there's a fairly new study from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that says about, uh, well, more than 11 million families um, or households are behind on their rent or mortgage payments. So there's a lot of concern, as there has been since last year, about uh, a rising number of evictions or, uh, you know, potentially a rise in homelessness due to this large number of people who are at risk of eviction. What's new right now is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Last year, they they put in place uh, an eviction moratorium. It uh, is going to expire at the end of this month. And so again, this is as you know a situation I think we've talked about throughout you know since last year where there's a ban on eviction, it's expiring, there's, you know, the question of if they're going to renew it or not, and also, you know, what happens if if it does expire. What really struck me in this was just how important these programs are to people facing eviction. Uh, there's a, a statistic that just one of these, uh, one of these organizations that we're talking about that help people out, 93% of the tenants represented by this program were able to avoid eviction. And it's contrasted with with another figure you have there where uh, from 2016 to 2019, it says less than 2% of tenants won their eviction cases in, in, a, in a county in Tennessee. So I guess, I mean, there was, we're talking about different places and we're talking about different systems, but uh, just that is a wide disparity uh, that legal access, the access to legal aid can help avoid that many evictions. Yeah, so that that program, the one that you mentioned that had, uh, you know, 93% of tenants were able to stay in their home, that was uh, a program from the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland, um, and also the United Way of Greater Cleveland. But they, last year during the pandemic, they started a right to counsel program, which basically guarantees sort of like on the criminal side, if you are, you know, facing criminal charges, you have the right to an attorney. This is kind of the same idea, but for civil court, because I think a a lot of people don't realize, maybe I've heard from people, like it's kind of a surprise that if you go to a civil court, you're not guaranteed an attorney. So, and most people who are involved in a civil case, they don't, they actually aren't represented and they're representing themselves, especially in eviction where, you know, if you had the money to have an hire an attorney you wouldn't be in that situation in the first place but so this idea of having uh, a right to an attorney in eviction case like that is it's not necessarily a new idea but there's definitely a huge push for it right now because of just because of the situation and actually here in Oklahoma the uh, 
Oklahoma Access to Justice Commission is trying to get some movement for us to have some kind of program like that here. But yeah, it makes a huge difference. And um, especially when, you know, you're facing someone who, um, like a a landlord who does have an attorney and does have a a pretty thorough knowledge of the law. And as a tenant, you might not know uh, your rights. You might not know all of the laws that are, are involved or that maybe your landlord might have broken a rule that, you know, gives you some kind of advantage or, you know, something like that. So you would have no idea. Molly, one of the things in the story um, that definitely jumps out when you read it is kind of the different ways that that landlords and other um, stakeholders are getting around these bans. So can you talk a little bit about some of those loopholes that are coming into play right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest loophole is just that the law, the the ban itself it puts the onus on the the tenant to basically like invoke the ban is is the the jargon but to to be covered by the ban you have to uh file a document basically that says you're covered by the ban but also when you get into court basically like the order is being interpreted differently by legal aid attorneys and judges and uh you know landlord attorneys in some places in Iowa I I heard that legal aid attorneys think that you know the the ban should cover you as soon as you file the thing and and it it should be taken care of but on the other end judges and uh landlord attorneys think that they should have the right to you know be able to cross examine the the tenant and like basically question the the veracity of them filing this this document and another thing that's happening is and i don't believe this is in the story but under the ban you can't evict people for non-payment of rent but some landlords are uh basically filing for non-renewal of of the lease in cases where they have like a month-to-month lease instead of continuing to honor the lease they're evicting folks so it's just another way to get around the the ban one of the things that justin mentioned before we started recording was that involving judges brings in some subjectivity to it to the process and especially what that makes me think of is in like texas because here in washington a lot of people don't know that in texas judges are not legal experts they are they're elected by like the at the county level it's not necessarily the kind of thing uh, that I would put into a policy, uh, having an elected official making the decision on whether or not somebody made enough of an effort to get their rent paid. Yeah, and even just the, the fact that this whole idea of subjectively, did you try to pay rent, that's not, that's not a policy, that, that shouldn't be in any policy, right? Something that subjective. It's just not good policy to say, um, here's all the ways you qualify, and this one is completely up to the discretion of whoever is making the choice, whether that's a judge or someone else. That That isn't like a, a helpful thing to include. That really just seems to me to help landlords. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if we could go backward and just explain it a little bit more, but like what's happening is, okay, so there are, you know, a number of things that tenants are required to to do to qualify for the ban but when they get into court 
one thing that's happening in some courts is that judges are giving the the landlord side an opportunity to question the veracity of the of the uh, tenants case there or like if they have any other arguments they're giving them space to do that but on the other end they're not um, giving the tenant the same types of advantage suggesting potential defenses or anything like that so it's just kind of like this off balance thing like I can't believe all of this is so complicated because like we uh, through uh, through federal systems interacting with state systems going down to the judicial level in a local uh, town it just seems like so chaotic across the country and even though people are facing the same kinds of problems or we can kind of look at like the big picture here uh, there are a lot of threads there are a lot of little tiny details that people have to pay attention to well i mean i think that is a problem though it shouldn't be so complicated the the ban shouldn't be so complicated the court system shouldn't be so complicated especially like if you have to have an attorney to succeed in court then that is a problem right there like it should be more simple or there should be more resources so that people can you know advocate for themselves in court because if you only have an advantage if you have money at your disposal then you know what does that say right there it says that the courts aren't aren't really equal so not really equal and did we talk about that there's kind of a racial disparity in some of these figures too uh in the story you point out some of those one of the issues with eviction is that you're more likely to be evicted if if you're not white something that came up in uh Iowa, they have a, a help desk that I believe is in uh, set up in the county court in Des Moines, the city of Des Moines. And they found when they compared the data, so they they found that the the cases they see, the eviction cases they see, it's like normally it's 42 percent people of color, but at that help desk, it's gone up to like fifty percent. And the other thing that is concerning about that is they've found that if you if you're a person of color who's being evicted you're twice as likely as a white person to have children so what that means is that there are a bunch of fam not just one person being affected by this but an entire family and children being affected by um, evictions which are like hugely destabilizing and you know obviously like mental health wise health wise i mean the whole reason for this cdc ban was to protect people's health thank you for listening Today's episode was hosted by Justin Sanders, Molly Bryant, and me, JC Cortez. This episode was produced by me and Molly Bryant. Our theme is Oh No by Hartle Road. Hard Reset is available on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe and rate us to help people find the show. Hard Reset is a podcast from BigIfTrue.org. We're nonpartisan and nonprofit. Support us at BigIfTrue.org support. Subscribe to our newsletter at BigIfTrue.org slash hardreset. 